difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie that we podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps here with Tasha Robinson and Scott Tobias. Our regular co-host Jennifer Yukoski is absent this week on a mysterious mission of revenge, but we sent word to the organization who sent a replacement in the form of our special and returning guest, Fulcher's Allison Wilmore. Hello, Allison. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm ready to just gum up the works, though, by telling you, you know, we're, we're cashless now and uh, I can only uh, confront bureaucracy. There's no revenge happening here. Uh-huh. Are we a stabless economy yet? Like this, there's just there's a lot of stabbing here. So like if you're if you're social distancing, it's very difficult to get the stab in. So I was thinking with this, if we, if we were recording this podcast in the 80s, we could have paired it with Better Off Dead that I want my two dollars kid. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. This is it's like a, kind this of is the like same. a higher. He wants more money here. It's basically the same story. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he's obsessed yeah. with getting. You know. it. That's all he wants. This kid. It's tireless. A machine. And he stabs so many people. I mean, the the trail of blood he leaves behind him is really pretty dramatic. Do people still watch Better Off Dead? It feels like that may be one that our generation kind of kept to ourselves. It wasn't really passed down to the other generations. But that's a, that's subject for another podcast. Oh, you're not, we're not going to uh, talk about One Crazy Summer or anything else of the Savage Steve Holland? The Savage uh, Steve Holland-ography or whatever? <laughs> no, I don't, I don't Some other time. Yeah. You know what? Let's, let's, let's put a pin in that and come back to that for a future pairing. For now, we are talking about Revenge, which has been providing motivation for fiction since before Homer composed the Iliad. And the theme has found fertile ground in the world of film. It's a tricky subject, however. Tales of Revenge often ask that we share in the protagonist's bloodlust and take pleasure in the harm they do to others, while also depicting the psychic toll revenge exacts on those who seek it. Heroes pursue it, but put their souls in peril in the process if they even have souls. For our next few episodes, we'll be discussing films built around one-man killing machines. Tasha, why don't you tell us about them? Well, first up, we'll be talking about Point Blank, John Borman's 1967 adaptation of The Hunter, a hard-boiled novel written by Donald E. Westlake under the name Richard Stark. Lee Marvin stars as Walker, a career criminal who's double-crossed by his partner and wife in the midst of hijacking a big score at Alcatraz. Left for dead, he nonetheless returns to carve his way through the California underworld in search of the $93,000 that will, in his mind, set things right again. We were reminded of Point Blank by the arrival of John Wick Chapter 4, the latest entry in a series that began as the simple story of a top assassin seeking revenge for his murdered puppy, and has since developed into a Baroque mythology involving shadowy organizations, secret tribunals, and globe-spanning mayhem. So this week, we'll start in San Francisco and make our way down to L.A. as we follow Lee Marvin. Then in the next episode, we'll accompany Keanu Reeves on a journey that begins in New York, ends in Paris, and makes plenty of stops in between. More after the break. Walker is an emotional and primitive man. Do you remember when we met? Suddenly, we were together. Lee Marvin is Walker, the hunter and the hunted. Who the hell are you anyway? My name's Walker. Are you crazy? Here we meet Walker. 
Donald Westlake didn't reveal many details about the appearance of Parker, the protagonist of 24 novels Westlake wrote under the name Richard Stark between 1962 and his death in 2008. But he made the details he did reveal matter. Here's Westlake describing one aspect of his protagonist in the first Parker novel, The Hunter. His hands looked like they were molded of brown clay by a sculptor who thought big and liked veins. Writing under his own name and some other pseudonyms, Westlake was often freewheeling and funny. But Stark got down to business. No wasted words, no extraneous descriptive bits, just hard-hitting action built around a man seemingly incapable of fear or remorse. The Hunter is a book as thrilling as it is chilling, asking readers to root for an awful character as he takes out a series of even more awful characters. In adapting The Hunter into the 1967 film Point Blank, director John Borman and star Lee Marvin kept Parker's relentlessness, even though the character had his name changed to Walker for reasons that had never been fully explained. An early sequence establishes Walker as as much man as machine. As his wife Lynn, played by Sharon Acker, wakes up and goes about her day, the film lets Walker's pounding footsteps thud on the soundtrack for 77 seconds as Walker makes his way from LAX to her front door. The thuds only stop when he kicks the door open, bursts in, grabs Lynn, and riddles her bed with bullets in hopes of catching Mal, played by John Vernon, the partner who betrayed him off guard. When Walker finds the bed empty, he essentially shuts down. Walker's a character with an unswerving trajectory. The film is not. This was Borman's second feature, preceded only by Catch Us If You Can, one of many attempts to recapture the magic of a hard day's night, this one with the Dave Clark Five. As Borman tells it, he owed the freedom he enjoyed making Point Blank to Marvin, who deferred all the approvals written into his contract as a top-tier star to the director. Borman used that freedom to make a film noir in new wave dress. Great films often owe a lot to convergences and coincidences, and Point Blank is no exception. Two years out from winning a Best Actor Oscar for Cat Ballou, Marvin was at the height of his power as a star. And while others might have balked at a film that contrasted their square-jawed, tough-guy screen presence with images of the burgeoning West Coast counterculture, Marvin seemingly sensed the contrast could work artistically, even if it did make him look like he belonged to another era. There were other signs of changing times, too. Made close to Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate, both of which also arrived in theaters in 1967, Point Blank was one of several films attempting to merge arthouse experimentation with mainstream Hollywood filmmaking. Borman was an apt student eager to push these experiments even further. That extended to his approach to the film's editing, which sometimes folds time on itself. In doing so, it takes Marvin's walker away from the Parker found in the pages of Westlake's book. In flashbacks, we see him falling in love with Lynn and his closest with Mal, and the walker of these moments, however fleetingly we see him, is a different man from the grim, monomaniacal Hulk of the main timeline. It's heartbreaking betrayal that's made Walker the man he's become. He wasn't born with this coldness. It settled on him. In discussing film versions of Parker, whose stories he adapted into a series of graphic novels, comic book creator Darwin Cook said a point blank, which both he and Westlake admired, they could not help but add a layer of sentiment to his relationships that does not exist in the books, unquote. Be that as it may, it's this layer of sentiment that deepens what could have been a technical exercise as cold as its hero's heart. Instead, it's more complicated. Walker is like a man who's lost his humanity, but still travels among the living. 
And that's also one way to read the film. On an audio commentary Borman recorded with Steven Soderbergh for the film's DVD release, Borman declines to definitively confirm or deny the oft-expressed theory that Walker never makes it out of Alcatraz alive, that all this might just be the fantasy of a dying man or the actions of a wraith. This starts with the fact that Walker's first appearance after the betrayal is accompanied by a cheery tour guide explaining how impossible it is to escape from Alcatraz, how no one gets out of there alive. Borman seems to recognize that there's nothing to be gained from coming down on one side or the other of this issue. It's richer to let the mystery be, and it doesn't really matter. Point Blank is a ghost story either way. Cell. Prison cell. How did I get here? What you want, sir? What you want? <laughs> Let's get out of here. I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you, Walker. It's important. Come on, Walker. Come on. What? Now you listen to me, Walker. I need your help. Don't you understand? I need your help. So not to contradict what I just said, but I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on the supernatural angle uh, to, you know, if, if, do you read this as a ghost story, a dream, something else, or just kind of a straightforward revenge story about a really tough guy who got off of Alcatraz somehow? Well, it certainly has this dreamlike quality to the filmmaking and the editing and the timeline, you know, the ways in which he, Walker goes into the water at Alcatraz having been shot. And then we cut to him on the tour you know, all healed up, ready to go. And even on the tour, they're talking about how unlikely it is that anyone who tried to escape Alcatraz by going to the water would ever make it. And, you know, there are several times over the course of the movie where people, uh, I think Angie Dickinson's character says, you sure died in Alcatraz, mm-hmm. didn't you? Like, you know, basically tells them outright that strongly suggests the the kind of death dream or purgatory or ghost reading I don't know that I'm convinced that that like brings that much more like depth to this, but I don't know. I'm curious about what you guys think. Yeah, I kind of agree with what you said. I mean, you know, I think the other additional, he does a little bit of a, that little death twitch, <laughs> right? When he's in the cell, mm-hmm. you know, people, people usually get into the twitching stage like that. They, they're, uh, they're, they're not long for this world. Uh, so, so I, yeah, all of that makes sense. And I, I think it might help account for the structure of the film as well. But I, I prefer to kind of think about this film as just simply death haunted and think about Walker's mission as being something that's just going to end there anyway that there that this is just something that needs to be satisfied in some way and there's just something he wants this ninety three thousand dollars as keith said you know to set things right but what is he setting here he's not he's not establishing any kind of future for himself it's not money that he wants he doesn't want anything seemingly except to get what it is that he that he was supposed to get to begin with and so uh, and the rest is just about death uh the the deaths that he's perpetrating and the death i think we can anticipate for him if he is if i guess if he's not dead already i'm normally very resistant of let's read a big chunk of this movie as not real when it's not necessarily in the, the language of the film, like the the whole idea of like half of tar is not actually a real story. It's it's just a dream. It's just it's not very interesting yeah. to me. Like it's it's maybe something to discuss and play around with, but as a serious interpretation of a film, I think it it takes all of the stakes away from a story. Usually, that said, 
you know, there are, I, I'm, I'm thinking of all of these examples of movies where you see the body at the end or you see the, the death at the end. You know, the, it's an occurrence at uh, Owl Creek Bridge style story. And the movie makes that clear at the ending. And I don't want to name any of the titles because on the off chance somebody hasn't seen them, I, I don't want to take that away from them. But this kind of interpretation is more interesting to me when the filmmaker is a little more overtly involved. But that said, the way this movie ends with Lee Marvin just kind of fading backwards into the darkness at Alcatraz and never coming for that theoretically actual $93,000 does make it a lot more tempting in this case than with most of these was it all the dream style movies. If anything... If anything, I almost like the movie more with that interpretation, just because it makes the storytelling style parse a little better for me. Yeah, I'm with you, Tasha. I don't really like decoding films or figuring films out. I, I like living in the ambiguity. I, I like, you know, films that kind of have that element of ambiguity, like the more things like you really died at Alcatraz and things like that, that that are in there as sort of like what's going on here. I, I, it's, it makes it more interesting to me, this particular film, but I don't want... You know, I would hate it if someone said, well, definitively, we meant this to be all a dream, or mm-hmm. this is incident, it occurred at Owl Creek Bridge, but with Lee Marvin and everything. I, I love the dreamlike quality of it. It also, you know, kind of put me in mind of, of Le Samurai in, in some ways as well, another like sort of death haunted film that's actually, you know, uh, you know, maybe a little less dreamy than this, but has kind of the same just sort of like, you know, removed from reality quality to it. I mean, the European influence mm-hmm. is pretty strong here. I, I, I was thinking watching this too about the relationship between walker and and his partner and his wife and there's a just a flashback scene of the three of them in a car together and i just immediately yeah, thought that's cool. exactly yeah. you know and 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 i think there's just a kind of I, I think there's that there's that effort on the part of borman as there were as there was on the part of a lot of filmmakers at the time to kind of modernize movies in that way to be inspired by what the French were doing by, by kind of shaking things up a little bit. And, uh, and it kind of just made weirdly just that homage being there kind of, kind of made sense of all the of relationships that would not have made sense anyway, you know, otherwise, you know, this, this, uh, strange, you know, <laughs> friendship slash romance, sort of the strange love triangle that, that really could almost only happen in a French film. But I think what do you, what do you, you know, when you see it as kind of a quoted in this movie, it, it plays in a way that it might not otherwise. I, I would say that the same is true for what happens to Lynn. I find it maybe a little difficult to to take in the degree to which he just kind of shows up and stands there and she like monologues humongously about the past and then like dies conveniently in a fit of ennui off stage. Everything about that makes so much more sense as like a new way of Truffaut touch uh, out of the French tradition than it, it makes sense in this particular movie. It honestly just sort of feels like he gets parked in a corner, which literally happens in a later shot where he parks himself in a corner of the the completely empty apartment. Uh, But it it feels like the narrative just completely sidelines him while she goes through this entire passion play entirely on her own. And it's just, you know, if we're going to go with the ghost reading, he's not really there. That scene might be might be the strongest evidence really in the film of the ghost reading because he doesn't say anything. And you really don't the pills I mean, that, that, that's a kind of an ongoing act of self-destruction. It is not something, you know, if you think about something like a suicide, 
usually those things are a, a little more have a, of a more immediate quality. Um, so this feels like he's almost interrupting or his presence there is just in the middle of this decline that's happening uh, and that she is kind of in this space where she is expressing, you know, whatever misgivings or regrets or something that she might uh, be having at that moment. There's also the, the bizarre inventory of the of the of the perfumes or, and ointments going going down the drain to it. It's just it does feel like removed from reality. But also, I think even the way she in her own flashback recounts the relationship, there is something kind of soggy about it. You know, there's something where she says she remembers meeting him in this kind of scene where we get right none of the dialogue. Uh-huh. And then she's like, and then suddenly we were together, you know, like they're on the beach as if she just elides like the whole reason that like, she would ha- be in a relationship with him in the first place. They're suddenly they're in love. They're together. And then this happens and this happens. There's something about that that feels almost like if you're going to go with the the idea of him like having like a, this being his death dream, that this is how he kind of explains how she sees it, you know, like this kind of this incomplete idea of, of of how she saw their love story like she ties up her own story so neatly without even needing him to be there and then later we had that that you know the scene when he's when he's in bed with uh her sister <laughs> you have that weird mm. scene where they're flipping over in the cover you know and it's they keep changing which the who the couple is you know it's him and Chris, and then it's him and Lynn, or, you know, it's it's Mal and Chris, it's Mal and Lynn, as if it really kind of reinforces the idea of this being something mythic in a way that I really love. It's not clear to what end. It's another example of what I tried to get in, you know, in the introduction to this, of where it diverges from the book, because in, in the book, it has this dreamy romantic quality, no matter what's going on to it, too. And in, in the book, Parker sh- shows up, uh, his wife dies of, of a drug overdose he says something like you were always stupid goes out and watches television for a few hours when it gets dark carries her body out and buries her in the park but first slashes up her face so her picture can't be in the newspaper so it's a much it's a colder character even than for all the coldness of lee marvin in this film and all the violence uh the world of the book is, is much grimmer even than this film yeah, that's a lot. Uh, I want to I want to cycle back a little bit to that that is what's the opposite of a meat cute? I mean, it's a it's a meat I know, very strange scene on the dock. Pretty damn ugly. Uh, he's drunk, she's drunk, and <laughs> she got caught in the rain. Apparently, not wearing any underwear and wearing a very thin dress, and she's being followed by a crowd of men who are staring just like completely uh, unashamedly ignoring her face and just staring wide-eyed at her body. And then she does this little sort of minuet with Walker as they're staring at each other. It's one of the most alarming ways I think I've ever seen a, a couple meet in a manner that's meant to sort of be like adorable and destined. And the leap from you drunkenly leered at my near nude body in public in front of a crowd of people who look like they might break into sexual violence at any moment to, and here we are on the beach together. It's just so stark. Yeah, Borman's not you know, taking huge risks here too. And it's, it's hard to believe it's like, it's, it was only a second film, his first one being a very fairly, I remember, I've seen it, I remember being pretty good for what it is, but it's just kind of another Hard Day's Night knockoff with Dick Clark Five, which is a band that's not nearly as charismatic as the Beatles. But I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just an m- enormous amount of faith that Marvin put into him you know, letting him make the film he wanted to make. It wasn't that huge of a success financially, but but certainly it's it's allowed the film to stand the test, the test of time. Was it always going to be structured this way? Do you know much about the history? 
so there's a joke on the Borby makes a really funny joke on the commentary where it's like the screen original screenplay that he describes is terrible, but he just kind of thinks like I threw it away and I can only assume that a very young Mel Gibson picked it up uh, <laughs> because this film was later he made his payback wow. and and, and uh, uh, but uh, so I, I think it was basically kind of redone by by others and I imagine Borman playing a pretty heavy role, but I, Marvin did too. The scene where the scene with Lynn where where he doesn't ask her any questions and she just provides all the answers without him saying anything that was that was a, that was a Marvin addition that was it was his idea Borman also says that it was kind of he felt like it, it was his way of working through his traumatic experiences of World War II which is uh, you know I, I can I can see that as a an element of this but not necessarily that would that would come to mind if, if someone hadn't pointed me in that direction that did sort of come up a little bit for me in that chaotic crowd scene at the beginning where Mal first confronts Walker and says, you know, trust me, you're my only friend. I need you to help me do this and like pins him down in a, a group of surging men. We're told briefly later that that's a reunion. And what Im- immediately came to my mind is I just don't believe for a minute that this is like a high school reunion or a, a college reunion. This, it's got to be a veteran reunion, doesn't it? It's It's got to be makes people sense. who were in the war together. But <laughs> the, the staging of it in terms of like all of these men crammed in this incredibly tight space wearing suits and all just surging violently against each other. I don't know. It reminded me a fair bit of American in Paris and that awful looking black and white party where everybody just like surges and slams against each other in a a completely crowded room. But it's a very strange way to have a gathering. And I guess uh, just the overall feeling of it there is maybe makes a little more sense if these are men who haven't seen each other in a decade or two who were in the war together and are now all becoming very inebriated in a very small area. I think also, you know, the whole movie has this, you have this feeling of like Walker returning to the world and you're not clear of how much time is supposed to have passed between him, you know, having sustained these like grievous wounds and then, uh, you know, coming back ready to go for revenge. But if it's just him healing, it couldn't have been that much time. And yet the world feels very different. You know, the world, he, he's like this organization seems like kind of baffling to him. He, he can't figure out how to get this amount of money. He is uh, it, like, I think one of my favorite parts of the movie is the fact that he is like causing immense damage to this enormous criminal organization for an amount of money that they find like hilariously small, but yet can't figure out how to pay him. There is this sense of him having come back from something and not fitting into the world anymore. You know, whether he it's because he's dead or because, you know, in that sense of like him having returned from somewhere else. The whole movie, he seems out of sync in a way. You know, it makes a lot of sense to me that this is, you know, channeling in some way this this feeling of having returned from a place of violence and still being violent in a way that does not line up with, you know, this kind of ordinary world, even this ordinary world of criminality anymore. Well, I think that's part of what's so brilliant about having so much of, you know, the high 60s Los Angeles high, you know, and San Francisco in the backdrop of this. He really does accentuate that he's a man out of out of time. I, Marvin was 43 when the film came out, but Mar- Lee Marvin kind of always looked like he was 55, you know, like, like even when he was much older, he looked kind of like that way, too. So but I mean, I think, you know, he's 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 looks pretty square. The organization looks pretty square. And like that scene where the amazing scene in, in the club where, where like the the jam band is playing and the light show is going and he just really just looks like 
something a visitor from another world and and that as well and and that kind of taps into the same things you're talking about allison the one thing i think we really lose with the ghost reading though as as much as it might explain about some of the structure here some of the story some of the imagery I think if we think of him as just this sort of revenant or shadow that that might or might not be there, we lose the kind of fun of the Fairfax plot line, you know, the the coup that's going on and the mm. the kind of subtlety of this guy like leading him on and appearing to be one thing when he's he's something entirely different. If he's not really there and people are just haunted by their guilt, or, you know, if he's some supernatural force, or if he only exists in his own mind, like whichever of these things you're trying to kind of map over the the imagery, you lose that angle of somebody weaponizing him and kind of the almost the the comedy effect of it, but also the simplicity and clarity of how he gets as this incredibly blunt object rolling downhill, how he gets the information that he needs uh, to enact his revenge. So I yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you square the Fairfax plot line and the ghost plot line. Yeah, I think for me, nothing is squareable in this movie like the, all of those hints are there you know in a way that i i really enjoy like that the movie kind of throws a lot of this dreaming this at you without also wanting to resolve it neatly in any way i mean that's part of what's so great about it you know you, you were talking about that scene at the party and like the, the fact that the movie kind of throws that at you very early on and like you know the scenes in which you get uh you meet these characters see what happens, you know, what sets the thing in motion. Like, it happens so quickly, and it's cut together in a way that is so disorienting. And, you know, and then later we we see that party again, but we don't see what the same thing happening. We don't see them on the floor, you know, wasted, kind of like having this kind of strange, this odd exchange. And there is a feeling throughout that, like, these kind of flashbacks and memories never quite always mash up. You know, even when we're getting flashbacks from earlier in the film, uh, later, you're not sure what you're supposed to be kind of drawing from revisiting those scenes. And I just, I love how it constantly decenters you. I don't think it's a movie that is supposed to have one reading with regard to resolving all of that strangeness. Yeah, that party scene is just so extreme. I, I kind of, you know, highlighted the ridiculous crowd and the surging men. But the idea of like pinning somebody down on the floor and screaming in his face, trust me, trust me, trust me, as a method for creating trust. I mean, I don't know about you, but if somebody did that to me, they would be pretty much at the top of my list of never trust this person. <laughs> Uh, so uh, what what are we kind of to make of the organization uh, too? I mean, it, I mean, Keith was talking about how Walker is old and square, and that the other the members of the organization are, are are square, but they kind of run they're kind of running things. They're kind of the, the the guys behind the guys, and and uh, you know they the the uh, they work in uh, you know these offices behind offices behind offices. Uh, we see uh, his friend who has moved up in the organization has this ultra modern home with with uh, that's super with all the security and all of these all the sort of modern gadgetry they don't fit in with i think what we see in the background but there's still i think there's still that impression that they're running things and that there's some kind of a some kind of secret cabal some kind something behind behind everything that is uh that uh, is able to yield power outside of whatever might be happening in the culture yeah i mean it's very corporate right i mean it's very like sort of like no matter how much the world changes, there's still like this, these men in men in suits who have all the money who actually pull the strings with things. Mm -hmm. Exactly. 
and who don't have anybody's best interests in heart. There's just a, a kind of ad man uh, glibness and, and slickness to them that feels like their entire job is moving money around, and yet they can't produce money when they're told to. They don't seem to have a whole lot of control. These are, We're told that these are the top men uh, at this organization, but even the top men can't make things happen when they want or like on the schedule they want. There's kind of a combination of nobody's in charge, uh, which you know might have just been a, a cynicism of the 60s kind of thing when it came to you know the man. The people in charge don't know what they're doing and aren't in control, no matter how much they uh, project it or pretend. Uh, it kind of seems to be the message here. Yeah, and the film also essentially cuts out all of Walker's backstory. In a, you know, we can kind of hazard some guesses as like in terms of him being a career criminal of some sort, but the organization and the way it looks creates the sense that there has been like a class divide has opened up somehow, right? And that like everyone in the organization, including his old pal, have gone corporate. And meanwhile, he's he's around still doing things the old way, which seems to involve just going right to uh bludgeoning people and and going in and and, you know, committing acts of violence. And that, yeah, there's this interesting feeling of like that, you know, criminal society is leaving him behind somehow, uh, that that it's moved on. It's, it's moved up to uh, penthouse apartments. And meanwhile, he's still doing things this bold way. But that becomes practically a superpower for him. Like the ability to punch somebody in the face suddenly becomes a superpower because nobody knows how to deal with it. There's one guy with a gun and he can ruin everything. Because, you know, we don't use guns anymore. We use the, the corporate boardroom. Like, where were you when we all moved to the penthouse suite? And the answer is, I will punch you in the face if you don't give me my money. And nobody has an answer to that. It's wild. Maybe also there's a distinction to be drawn between levels of criminality and, and, and codes of criminality, too, and how, how, they, how they're, they might be different for somebody like Walker, who... who is you know on the level within what he does who expect who makes a deal and expects it to be honored and then the sort of corporate environment that is so ruthlessly cutthroat to the point where you know the, the big reveal is that you know he's being used as a tool to eliminate all these other guys there's no there's no there are no rules nobody is true to their word everyone is sort of stabbing each other in the back and that is the film's representation of a, of a corporate environment so this is a revenge movie, and I, I kind of want to talk about it in the tradition of revenge movies, too. So on, on one end, you probably have the, the simplest revenge tales where, where it's just, hey, the let's get some revenge and, and everyone's happy. And other, you get more complicated things like Taxi Driver and Straw Dogs, where you, you're at least kind of supposed to feel bad about enjoying watching some of the violence that you're seeing. Uh, where, where does Point Blank fall on that scale? Oh, I don't think you're supposed to feel bad about anything. Yeah, I thought. Okay. I'm, I'm, see, I'm glad that Allison just said that because I was like, uh, you know, yeah. I, what, should I should I just admit that you know all this is pretty righteous that you, you know they they got what was coming to them, and it looks cool. <laughs> I mean, that that said, I don't really feel much for him either. Like, this yeah. is not a, a movie about a, a soulful, pathos-driven man who had had everything he loved taken away from him. It's kind of about a, a blunt object that is experiencing, I don't know, something. I'm not even sure that I believe he is mourning his wife or his life or his betrayal. Or I'm not con super convinced that he even wants that money. 
given that he doesn't go get it at the end, he feels he has been wronged. He is a force, like in the most literal sense of a, a revenge movie. You know, so many revenge movies are about a man who has lost everything and and becomes a force to be reckoned with. But there's always a sense that, you know, they they do actually want the thing that they're chasing. Now, you know, Liam Neeson wants his daughter back. Keanu Reeves wants revenge for his puppy. The Limey wants to kill a dude. Here, I'm not sure I understand fully what Walker wants, except maybe not to be a patsy. He wants his $93,000. Does he, though? Does he? Literally, he wants his $93,000. Right. He's not actually, he doesn't really have a, any plans to spend it or something. It's just, it's just the, you know, it was the, these were the agreed upon terms. So he got, I think he wants, yeah. uh, you know, the order to be restored. And, uh, and the way that's going to happen is if he gets his, his piece of the loot. But yeah, to Tasha's point, the movie goes out of its way to kind of keep you on the outside of him, right? Like to not give you this like relatable insight into his his motivations into his soul like it, it really wants you to see him as this slightly opaque blood object crashing through all of these these existing systems mm-hmm. it allows you to kind of enjoy all of the all of the mess that's being caused uh you know from the outside without without needing to feel a deep sense of emotional investment in why these things are happening. Just out of curiosity, I, I did look up uh, $93,000 in 1967. It's 837000 and some change dollars All right. today. Well, we, did, we did kind of ask ourselves that during the movie. In the Bay Area, though? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it goes no. far. goes far there. In so many revenge movies, though, you know, somebody has been raped or their child has been killed or some family member of theirs has been kidnapped. Like something has happened to them that's terrible. And you even if you are a little horrified by the things that they do, you have a sense of there being kind of a maybe a relatable human motivation under it, if an extreme one. But here, Walker is mad because he didn't get the illegal goods that were going to be stolen from other people that he actually didn't do anything to get. His partner unexpectedly murdered the people carrying this money, which Walker was not expecting and didn't want. So what has he lost, really? He's lost a wife that he doesn't seem to care about at all. And he's lost money that he was never actually entitled to and barely participated in the the act that secured it illicitly from other people. There's not a lot there to relate to in terms of, gosh, I hope this guy gets the payback he's he's owed. I, I hope this guy gets a happily ever after. I mean, he gets pretty screwed over, Tasha. <laughs> like he's like, yeah, he supposed to have I a- think also I think he did love his wife at some yeah. point. And and he, the whole idea was, you know, they were gonna they weren't gonna kill those guys, and they were gonna take the money and split it. And and I, I mean, it's a pretty pretty thorough betrayal. He gets shot and probably killed, or maybe not killed. Um, it's pretty bad. <laughs> oh, here's my alternate reading. This is a movie about freelancer rage. Ooh. You know, his like best friend, his best friend, who's sort of set up as this like other self, right? And you have that scene where they're like flipping over in bed and they're changing business. His best friend is a company guy, goes on staff somewhere, <laughs> is willing to throw relationships out and ruin things just to stay back on staff. And meanwhile, here's this lifetime gig worker, you know, lifetime freelancer 
he's so mad that he got talked into, uh, you know, helping this guy join the company. And so it's, <laughs> you gotta watch out for yourself, you know, just because someone's promising you health insurance and a <laughs> 401k match, you know, sometimes you gotta say no. This podcast is ma- currently made up of half freelancers, half staffers too. So you should keep going with this. I will just let you know that if, if any of you contract with me for a piece and I don't pay you, murdering me and then my boss and then my boss's boss will probably not actually get you your money i'm coming for you matt patches (laughs) (laughs) just send an invoice for god's sake it's it'll it'll be fine (laughs) just just send us a reminder email we didn't hit the payout button uh, and we and we should have and i apologize for that but yeah the the idea that it's all just a metaphor for uh for a freelance worker who whose invoice hasn't been paid kind of explains to me why he's so willing to work his way up the ladder like so now i'm just imagining you know walker having to fill you know log in to some byzantine system <laughs> to fill up some right. forms that also need to upload a, a, a an invoice but if you get the invoice number a little off you you, you know the, the hrp anyway go ahead Sorry. right they're like you already submitted an invoice number five that's why it didn't travel. I like the idea of Brewster wow. just, just screaming at him, you never provided your tax identification number. Just give us your tax identification number. You can have your money. But uh, yeah, I mean, in as we're talking about revenge films and like whether he has has the right to this money and whether he has the right to feel aggrieved. So yeah, yeah, like uh, getting shot and uh, left for dead sucks and all that. Tough to be him, a mm-hmm. criminal who was trying to murder other people and steal their money. Boohoo, so sad. His decision that the person who betrayed him is dead because he murdered him and therefore somebody else owes him that money is also kind of a weak link in like the righteousness of any claim he has here. I just you're just not going to sell me on the idea that he has a right to feel mad. I don't know that he has a right to like, you know, murder his way up the scale because uh, somebody completely I would be I would be very sad if somebody burst into my office and said that they were going to kill me if I didn't pay off the invoice that somebody else uh, didn't pay off. And, you know, they, they we, I, I, I did this freelance piece for uh, somebody else and they didn't pay me. So if you don't produce the money right now, you're going naked out, out of a window and off a ledge. And there's something very funny about the fact that in the movie, you might expect the like emotional you know, climax to be him confronting the friend who betrayed him. But no, that guy dies halfway through <laughs> and the movie keeps going. Yeah, it really does. Instead of of this being invested in this, like the guy who took your wife and all of them with cash and read off, you know, he goes, yeah, naked off the balcony and, and uh, Walker keeps going. He's like, no, that's what I want is my invoice paid. That's what really matters. That, that is one wild effect. <laughs> Flying is mm-hmm. going off that balcony naked. Oh, man. I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, just in my crude revenge movie brain, like I was like, yeah, all these, all these guys had it coming. I feel fine. <laughs> I mean, you know, they all kind of suck. You don't, yeah, you don't feel yeah. bad about them yeah. dying. It's, it's just more. I don't know. It feels like Al Capone getting uh, taken down for tax evasion to me. Like they're they're not getting hmm. taken down for the crimes that they've done. They're getting taken down because they they got in the way of a, a blunt, unstoppable force. Speaking of blunt, unstoppable forces, can we talk about how uh, Chris eventually manages to stop the unstoppable force by hitting him with a pool cue, which is the first thing that breaks through his complete indifference to her sexual interest in him? And then they go to bed. 
like he he hmm. has to chase her through a house where she's just doing like i don't know angry leprechaun tricks just let's let's turn things on in rooms that you're not in let's uh turn on the radio let's let's mock you through the pa system and then when you finally uh catch up with me i i'm going to hit you over the head with a pool cue and he's like oh she was flirting with me that whole time <laughs> got it finally I think it's true also that like many revenge movies also feel a bit like, uh, you know, fantasies uh, like they can like some of some of them are very openly like especially masculine fantasies. And I think the places in which this movie feels the most like that are when, uh, yes, his wife monologues at him about how wrong she was and then, you know, dies <laughs> without leaving anything to hear from him. Uh, so sorry. And then. And then his wife's sister slaps him for what feels like two minutes <laughs> while he looks on impassively, uh, you know, as her means of flirtation and uh, ultimately kind of finally seduces him by bonking him on the head with a pool cue. Uh, it is a kind of uh, a really funny form of, I don't know what, flirtation. Uh, yeah, I guess. I would, of all of the sequences in this movie that I would like to know more about the shooting of, the sequence where she just beats on him while he stands impassively for several minutes, it looks very real. And, you know, I'm kind of a sucker for stuff at the movies, like thinking it looks realer than it actually is, especially when it comes to people hitting people. But it it really does look like she just wails on him uh, to to the degree that she can, like to the extent of her strength. And he just kind of stands there and takes it. Yeah, but this is this is pre policewoman Angie Dickinson. She wasn't that she wasn't that in shape yet. She was uh, pretty 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 weak punches. Yeah, maybe pretty weak punches, but uh, you know, I wouldn't want her smacking on my face for two minutes while I just kind of stand there and go, okay. <laughs> So I don't I don't want to take up a lot of time with other incarnations of Parker, but I, I do want to at least mention it. Uh, uh, this film was was the same novel was was made as Payback, starring Mel Gibson, which I remember not being when she plays Porter, not Parker or Walker. Uh, I remember not being particularly good, although I hear the director's cut is better. But Parker's been played a lot by a bunch of other actors over the years in movies that have you know, either kind of fallen into obscurity or were never that well-known to begin with. The, be the best, probably the most rewatched these days is Made in USA, the John Luke Goddard film, in which Anna Karina plays a version of, of Parker. But I remember that being so, I remember swimming through that movie. <laughs> I'm not sure that, you know, if there was a coherent, coherent narrative to that one, I, I'm not sure uh, I got it. That's based on a, film, a book called The Jugger. I've never seen The Outfit, in which Robert Duvall plays Parker. I've never seen The Split, in which Jim Brown plays Parker. Uh, I think one of the more obscure ones is Peter Coyote, which I can't really picture playing a version of Parker in a in a uh, adaptation of, of the of the novel Slayground, uh, in which Parker ends up uh, fighting a bunch of people in in an abandoned amusement park. Michael Constantine and Misa Sock was not a film I know at all, and then most recently Jason Statham in Parker, which I, I which was I believe meant to launch a series of new Parker films, that, but it, it kind of stalled out at one. I have, have any is anyone seen any of these? Uh, on payback which i'm guessing we've all seen at one point or another i've seen parker and i thought it was a fair mm -hmm. bit of fun he is once again uh just a very very blunt object charging through life but uh i mean it it felt not unlike this in some ways and and very different in other ways the heist that it's built around i think is interesting the structure that it's built around is interesting and i just kind of have a soft spot for jason statham doing his predictable jason statham thing 
He strikes me as a little too winky to play the Parker that I know, but I would say it's its own interpretation of it. Scott, you've seen Made in USA at some point, no, right? No, no, no. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, it, I don't, it's I good. Am not, it's just, I, it's just... I am not the Godard <laughs> scholar you think no, I am. Well, you know, I don't, well I'm, I mean, I'm disillusioned by this. Yeah. I, the, one other bit of trivia before we wind things down is that uh, Westlake, uh, when he pictured Parker, he pictured him as uh jack palance in, in another film that we've covered on the show which is panic in the streets uh so that was in his mind that's who parker looked like despite all the different incarnations that was our, uh, he's that been was our on COVID, screen uh that was our covid was. thing because we paired it with contagion and it was kind of like oh this thing yeah. this COVID thing's gonna come through sweep through we'll do this themed deal and then uh, we'll get back <laughs> together in a couple of weeks will this even be relevant by the time we, get to, by the time we release this episode <laughs> um anyway well we'd love to hear uh your thoughts on this discussion parker covid revenge whatever you want to talk about and uh or anything else in the world of film you can email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net if you want to share responses with us and other listeners leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730 we'll be back with some of that feedback in just one moment Now it's time for feedback, but before we get to it, we want to shout out Film Spotting, the Next Picture Show's Mothership podcast, hosted by Adam Kipinar and Josh Larson. Adam and Josh love to dig into classic films as well, and they're right now they're in the middle of a 1960s madness tournament series. Point Blank has, did not even make the cut for the tournament itself, but but you know that, that's what we're here for. We'll talk about the other 60s movies. As for our podcast, we've had some interesting feedback lately, including a piece of mail from France chatting us for something we missed. Tasha, can you share that one? Sure thing. Joss writes, I'm pretty sure someone has already written to you about this, but I only just saw St. Omer this week and I listened to the episode today. The movie Rama watches of Medea is, of course, Pasolini's. It's famously the only starring role of Maria Callas, and she's there on the screen. I'm very disappointed in you. Winky face icon. I don't know if it's very available in the US. Here in France, it's on virtually every streaming service I was shocked to discover. Anyway, I can't recommend it enough. Beautiful production design, unique artistic choices, plus, you know, those incredible choirs on the Ghost in the Shell soundtrack, they're heavily inspired by the Iranian chants on this one. Anyway, thanks for the great work and have a great day. So in our defense, that, you only see that the screens for that very, very briefly. The other thing is, is that, that it is not actually not streaming here and it has not been widely available. But by coincidence, the very same day we got this email uh, chatting us for not recognizing the Pasolini Medea, uh, there's a press release went out that Criterion is putting out a, a Pasolini box set that includes Medea. So we will get a chance to catch up. Although maybe I'm speaking too soon. Has anyone else seen, has anyone seen Pasolini's Medea? I have not, no. but I think it's impressive that we have this much uh, influence over Criterion's choices, release choices. <laughs> and that we have listeners who recognize music from the famous uh, Scarlett Johansson film, uh, Ghost in the Shell. <laughs> um, oh. <laughs> oh, you hurt my heart, Keith. <laughs> all right I, I, which we covered I, on the show i believe right yeah i don't know i i've um i, I don't i don't know know this pasolini film like i know the others i did I, there was a time when i went on a little bit of a kick you know i've seen a bunch mm -hmm. but not not that one i've seen akatone and mama roma and you know all that, but not not medea wasn't enough sexual humiliation in this version of medea for your taste Scott? No, i'm afraid not I'm afraid not. Stri stri strictly a sallow man okay. <laughs> that's right i just skipped um, i skipped the entire i just skipped the very last uh pasolini movie <laughs> 
So, well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at John Wick Chapter 4, a film in which even more of those who oppose the hero wind up dead. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, remember Alcatraz is a great to visit, but also a great place for double crosses. <laughs>